So here's what I want to, maybe as a bit of a, another thought experiment, start this next session with. Let's say we did the same activity, but we did it 75 years ago. And we did this with a group of Midwestern Protestant evangelicals. Do you think there would have been as many noticeable points of difference and dissonance, at least perceived by them? Would they have been as able to see the points of dissonance? Maybe there were fewer points of dissonance 75 years ago, too. From about 1938 all the way to the 1970s, church membership among U.S. adults hovered around 70 to 75% of the population. As of the la uh, last Gallup survey in March of 2021, that number is now 47%. That is a massive cultural shift. Yeah. Huge. It is unprecedented. You had essentially for almost, what would that have been? 50 to some, maybe 50, 60 years straight of 70 to 75% of people were church members, not just like they showed up on wow. Christmas and Easter. They were church members. Now that's 47%. We wow. have to acknowledge that for most of the 20th century, the vast majority of Americans had at least some sort of belief in some variation of the Christian story, at least enough for them to become church members. We have to acknowledge that our grandparents, so if you're my age or older, maybe even your parents' generation, they were not totally insane for thinking of America as a Christian nation. We have to see that. Like, yeah. was that true? Objectively true? That's a whole other debate, but we have to understand that they saw it that way. Everybody in their neighborhood went to church. Right. Like, yeah. this, was, this was cultural. And then something happened. We have to acknowledge this in history, that there was a cultural shift. Our parents, my parents' generation, my grandparents, they saw a cultural shift happen in America where the stories, values, and customs of the once dominant culture were experiencing a significant amount of dissonance with emerging cultures and countercultural movements. Which is kind of like an interesting, just as an aside, it's like a paradoxical side effect of our deep value for individualism and freedom of speech. Because you actually allow for these subcultures to get together and say what they want to say. Mm. And they might want to say things that are like, well, we don't agree with that value. Mm. And like the individualism thing allows for that to happen. It's an interesting thing. So you could actually have situations, and we kind of saw this in the countercultural movements of the 1960s. Um, there was the sexual revolution, uh, the summer of love, um, the hippie movement. These were countercultural movements that were like challenging some of the traditional American values that a lot of people also saw as Christian values. So there's this increasing sense by the time we get to the 1980s. Who in here was born in the 1980s? Okay, it's a good percentage. 1990s? Uh, 2000s? Okay, what? all right. So if you were born in the 1980s, some 60s, yep, some of you lived through some of that, that cultural change. We're talking about by the time we get to the 1980s, there is this increasing sense 
among evangelical Christians that they are being pushed into exile. So, what I want to talk about here for the remainder of our time is how do Christians respond to the threat, whether it's real or not, the perceived threat of exile. And has the way we respond, has the way broadly the evangelical subculture, has it responded well to that situation or not? So I want to start by telling you a story. Stories are important. They give us our values, right? It's a story from history. It's a very difficult story. But it's a story that's central to understanding the biblical narrative. I'm going to make the claim to you guys that I think for much of the last 30, 40 years, I think we've gotten huge parts of the biblical story wrong. And if we're going to tell a better story that keeps us more in alignment with the values of the kingdom of God, we're going to need to reassess the stories of Scripture that we heard and go, were we reading that the right way? So there's this moment in history, and we can actually connect it to our own era. It's a moment central to God's story and the story of Scripture. We go back to the 6th century BC in the ancient Near East, and many generations have passed since the glory days of King David and Solomon. It's 586 BC, and Jerusalem has been sacked by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. The bodies of the dead Israelites are actually stacked up and burned in a place called the Valley of Hinnom, which is actually the same place previous generations had practiced idolatrous worship where they sacrificed their children outside the walls of the city. So the same place where people were offering, the people of God were offering their children as sacrifices to Molech ends up being the place where the dead bodies of Israelites are stacked outside of the walls of the city to be burned. As a side note, all but maybe two occasions, one to two occasions in the Gospels, when Jesus, you see Jesus use the word hell, it's the word Gehenna, and what Gehenna is, is just a transliteration of the Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom. So Jesus is calling a very unique picture back to their memory every time he uses that word, except for one instance or two instances. This is a, a pretty important time. So the remaining survivors, the ones that don't get killed, they get hauled off to Babylon. After this vicious onslaught, they get hauled off to the city-state of Babylon. This is a historic crisis. Can you imagine what that moment would have been like? I mean, in some ways, we're, we're kind of seeing it on the news now in Russia and Ukraine. It's like people fleeing as refugees and... Imagine what this represented to the people of Israel. God's very presence was supposed to dwell in the temple and some pagan king came in and just destroyed it. That's going to be quite a deconstruction that you're going to go through. So the pagans roll into town. They burn the place where the presence of God is. They stack dead bodies up. They burn them and they haul you off, women and children, off into captivity. So what's the game plan now, God? All right, here's the game plan. God actually gives him a game plan. Jeremiah, let's look at Jeremiah together. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 7. This is the word of the Lord to the people of God in exile. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. 
this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's God's game plan. You guys ready for it? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Really, God? This sounds like a stupid plan. Babylon is a wicked pagan empire that just raised the promised land to the ground. We're your chosen people. You picked us. You blessed us. You set us apart among all the other nations. We have a special history, a special story. Nebuchadnezzar pillaged your people, laid waste to your temple, and your strategy is to plant gardens? You want us to bless Babylon? Are you serious? Like, maybe we should try to defeat Babylon instead, right? Through violence, through the same way they defeated us. Or at least maybe we could like protest and picket, organize some boycotts, win a culture war in Babylon. That strategy seems like it makes a lot of sense to me. But to seek the good of the city, to work to see the city blessed, this is your best strategy, God. Yes, and it always has been. And this is where we need to re-examine the whole biblical narrative. This has always been God's strategy for his people. And it's not just in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, this is from the moment we see Abraham's calling. He was called for what purpose? He was called so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Yeah. God didn't call Abraham to be like, you're the only person I love, and your family is the only people I'm going to be about. He called them to a job. Your job is to bless the world, Abraham. That's what you're called to. And you're called to form a people, Israel. People whose very name means one who struggles with God. What were they called to do? They were called to be priests, mediating God's presence to the world. A peculiar people. It's a weird job description, right? We see this ultimate embodiment of this calling in Jesus the Messiah. His entire mission, death, resurrection, was done. Why? It's the first Bible verse you memorize. Because God so loved the world. This has always been the vocational calling of the people of God. And I think we get it confused sometimes and this is I'm just, I have to draw this out maybe for you okay because sometimes we see these unique callings to Abraham to Israel and in the New Testament to the people of God through the Spirit and we go well this means we're the only people that God loves and it's like no that's not the story if we start from the beginning we have the Adamic covenant and that's universal. God makes a covenant with all humanity. Yes. Like, his disposition is for them. 
His salvific desire is for all of humanity. And then what's the next covenant? Noahic covenant. Also universal. We could even say cosmic because it includes plants and animal life. The whole cosmos is, gets, gets wrapped up in that one. And this is where like, we need to get this because this is a universal orientation and this is displays God's Whoops, let's spell it right. God's salvific love for all peoples and all creation. Yeah. How does he do that? Here's, here's where it gets interesting. He calls a particular people. He calls Abraham. Yeah. Not because Abraham's the only person that God loves but because God so chose for God's purposes to set apart a people for himself that they would do the work of blessing the world. Mosaic. Moses. Vocational. Not the only people God loves. <laughs> You're called to be a peculiar people. And here's the cool thing. In Christ, we see like both covenantal callings synthesized into one. In Christ, we see God's universal disposition to all of humanity and all creation. I love you for God so loved the world. He sent his son. What does John the Baptist say? The first time he sees Jesus, well, maybe he saw him as when they were young. We don't know those stories. But he sees Jesus coming to him in the wilderness. He says, this is the Lamb of God to take away the sins, not just of Israel, of yeah, the world. That's right. So we see the universal disposition of God's love for the whole world. And a really cool thing happens. Now God's accepting resumes from Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Now all of us can be part of the vocational call to bless the world. And they had to work through that in the first century quite a bit. That ends up being what like, the most of the epistles are about in the New Testament. The story that we tell matters. The story we tell from Scripture matters. I was born in 83, and the 80s were an interesting time, and the 90s were an interesting time for evangelical culture, where the guiding story to me that I felt was communicated, and I don't think my parents ever explicitly did anything like wrong like this. It was just in the broader cultural sea we were swimming in like again how many of you watched like mcgee and me right okay you could have gone to like a southern baptist church and watch mcgee and me and i was like in a word of faith prosperity gospel church watching mcgee and me but we were both watching mcgee and me and getting those same lessons yeah. so there's a bunch you know i love that you guys do your own vbs curriculum here i think that's beautiful it's really hard work where's abby at right yeah. it's really hard work but otherwise, like most churches, they buy their VBC curriculum. So what happens is you get thousands of churches learning the same thing, which can be good. I'm just telling you, this is how this stuff gets shaped. So it wasn't like my parents or my, anybody did me wrong, but this is kind of the message I felt was happening. Hey, we are heading into cultural exile right now, and the way we're going to deal with this exile is through a culture war. Mm. That's the way I felt it was communicated to me. And how, okay? Like, I think about how the story was told. 
And at the core of so much of the biblical story was a sense that we were in a deep struggle and war, a fight for conquest with God on our side because we were a Christian nation, not just a nation with many Christians. Somehow, like we were a Christian nation on par with Israel. We had a manifest destiny. But because of the 60s and the Beatles and those dirty hippies <laughs> with their Eastern religions and those draft dodgers and they weren't fighting for freedom in proper service to God and country like their dads had and all their sexual promiscuity and then Roe v. Wade, Supreme Court decisions and prayer being removed from public schools and then we can't forget of the ever-present threat of those Soviet communists. All of these things are happening because Christian America was being taken over by the secular world. That was the story, was it not? I I mean, some of you lived this, right? (laughs) It still is, maybe. I'm in the Lord's army, yes, sir. (laughs) I may never fly. March in the infantry. Calvary. What are you in? You're in a war. At at like seven years old at VBS. What is this practice doing? It's reinforcing values and telling a story. It was a fun little tune, but do you ever step back and go, well, that's interesting. Wow. Like, why? Oh, gosh. Sorry, Josh. I don't want to get in trouble for this one. Say it. But why? At my Christian school, I went through a Christian school from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. Why did we start every single day by saying the Pledge of Allegiance, the American flag first, and then the Christian flag? Why did I have to put my hand over my heart, a posture of reverence, and pledge allegiance there, and then pledge allegiance to a Christian flag after? Nobody told me one was above the other, but the implicit thing in that practice after years of doing it is if one's not above the other, these two are pretty much the same. Right. And now I'm going to... Sorry, you guys aren't going to invite me back, Josh. Hey. I agree with (laughs) So why was I moved to tears when I saw the storming of the Capitol and people carrying in Christian flags. Yeah, that's right. And it's not because people didn't think they were doing something wrong. I don't want to get into all of that. But to me, I saw people carrying Christian flags. And I go, oh, yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense when you've associated the two together. And you feel like American culture is under attack, those core values of American culture, so we better be in the Lord's army. It's so easy for these connections to happen, and nobody ever explicitly said it, because the practices were there. Right. I heard, I went to big events where the implied thing was, unless America goes back to those days, we're never going to see revival. Right. And when people talk about revival in America, they wanted America to look like Leave it to Beaver again. They weren't talking about a great awakening. That's not all the case, but I sat in a lot of those meetings, right. in prayer meetings, and there were clear connections being made. So these are practices that shape us inside the church, but you know what? There's a whole bunch of spiritual formation practices that we participated in outside of the church that shaped us even more. I'm telling you, no matter what killer sermon Pastor Josh or Katie or Ben, anybody else preaches, If you sit here and listen to an awesome sermon for an hour, you have great face-melting worship for another hour. 
but then you go home and you spend 10 hours cruising YouTube and you're downloading all this political, partisan, like tense stuff, culture war stuff, I'm going to tell you what's going to shape you more. It's not Josh's killer sermon. Right. So when I'm coming home from church, right, and I'm driving with a friend, my parents never did this, I'm driving with a friend and like they've got political talk radio on every single time. I'm telling you what's shaping their imagination isn't the gospel. So, we got this story and these spiritual formation practices and they reveal, they felt like this were our options, like for how we're supposed to engage with the world, the secular world outside of our Christian subcultures, our church microcultures. This is kind of what I felt and, you know, maybe you didn't feel that way. I'm glad if that didn't happen to you. But when I engage with the world. If I'm engaging with Babylon, here's what I felt my options were. Oppose. Number two, separate. Number three, convert them to our team. And so much of like even evangelism didn't feel like the announcement of the good news that yeah. Jesus is Lord. It felt like I've got to convert somebody to my tribe in the culture war. Right. And I, I gotta be honest, like I dealt with anxiety because when I went to the grocery store, I was crippled with this burden that the, ca- the person behind the cash register is probably a secularist. So I don't know how to engage with them in this 30-second conversation while I'm checking out my groceries. And I, I'm not joking. I sometimes would feel really, really bad at the end of that time when I hadn't converted them in the 30-second passing conversation. Instead of right. just thinking about, well, how can I most bless them today? Right. Because salvation yes. belongs to the Lord. Yeah. So how can I just bless them the most right. with on. the time that I had? Think about, I mean, 90s kids here. Think about like peak, peak 90s song, DC Talks, Jesus Freak. Why did that resonate so much? Because we felt so weird. I felt weird. Which, and the funny thing was, it was like, we're going to separate and we're going to have Christian music. But what we're going to do is we're going to steal like Nirvana's riffs. Because you can't listen to Nirvana. And the song is going to sound like Nirvana with some rapping in it. And something about a, a jelly that wiggles. That was the one line that always made me laugh. Wiggles around like marmalade jelly. Oh, right? Yeah. And the little line. Yep. <laughs> I would go to the Christian bookstore. Those were a thing, too. Christian bookstore. Christian bookstore. Oh, yeah. And it was really funny because we were going like, you have to be separate. You can't listen to secular music. And on the wall, no joke, there was a Christian music comparison chart. chart. So it was like, if you like Tupac, you probably like T-Bone. If you like Bone Thugs and Harmony, which I did, didn't tell my parents, you probably will like Gospel Gangsters, and I didn't. (laughs) It's so weird, right? Like, separate. So, the really hard part was when we actually would go out and engage in Babylon. It was when we spent all of our time opposing, separating is that when we actually went out to like genuinely love on somebody, it felt like, well, what's your angle? Right. 
right? Right. Because why are you emerging from your cocoon? <laughs> like, what, what's, what's your angle here? Yeah, yeah. We're wrapping up here in the next five, ten minutes here. Um, so this whole strategy, I hate to break it to you, culture war Christianity has objectively failed. Church attendance got worse. We're worse now than when we were back in the 1960s and 70s. What if all this culture war Christianity was driven by an honest concern? Like, if we don't treat this like a war, the next generation is going to be assimilated by the secular world out there. That was an authentic concern people had. And you have to understand why. Like, I'm not trying to diminish the really serious concerns that people had about the change in culture. It was a big change. And parents were concerned. They don't want their kids assimilated into this stuff. You, I mean, you, you have parents. You don't want your kids assimilating some of the new values we see in our culture that we go, this isn't in keeping with the kingdom of God. Right. There was an honest concern there. But I have to say, if we were to evaluate this strategy on the merits of its effectiveness in keeping the next generation from being assimilated... It was a failure. It just didn't work. For the first time in history, in American history, there are more people who identify as having no religious affiliation than those who identify as evangelical Christian. If culture were Christianity's aims were to keep the next generation from going astray, it objectively failed. Between 2009 and 2019, the number of millennials who identify as Christian dropped 16% in 10 years. That's like a huge shift. It doesn't feel that way because you lived in it, but you talk to people that didn't live that time, you go, man, why do young people not want to go to church? The failure of its effectiveness, though, was just a symptom of its failure to actually be in keeping with the way of Jesus and the biblical call to the people of God. Not in all parts, but in some crucial parts, we have to confess We missed the story in some key areas. I think one of the big things that we missed is that in many ways, like, we had already been assimilated into Babylon. We'd been long programmed to believe that there was this perfect marriage between the American dream story and the Christian story. And it's an unholy matrimony. Is there harmony in some places? Yes, we talked about that. Is there dissonance? Yes, and we cannot turn a blind eye to the dissonance. You know who didn't fall for this, though? African-American Christians. They never fall for that. From the get-go, they knew they had been exiled. Their ancestors had been exiled, imported here as property just like Israel and Babylon. Yeah. So there's a lot of things we're learning. People that have my pigmentation are learning from people of color that they experienced that. And they go, you know what? This is how we manage being in exile. Yeah. So the culture war Christianity story, I just want to propose to you, it's not a true story. It's not in keeping with the way of Jesus you think our culture war is bad? Try living in the first century in Israel. Roman overlords, a puppet king in Herod, 
at odds with the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hate each other. They're competing for power. You've got this other group called the Zealots that are running around using terrorist tactics to try to kick out the Romans and the Roman sympathizers. Roman sympathizers like tax collectors. And then you sit at like Jesus' table and you're like, oh, that's Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Yeah. Oh, that would have been some intense conversations. Right. Yeah. You think our culture war is bad? It was nothing compared to what they were going through in the first century. So here's what I want to propose to you and offer to you is to think about as a new strategy. No taking dominion over the seven mountains of culture. Instead, nourish Christian communities that will practice not culture war Christianity, but culture care Christianity. Bless the city, plant a garden, grow something beautiful right where you live. Raise some good kids. Work hard at your job. What's the maximum good I can do in this moment? Yeah. And if it costs me something, if I have to carry a cross, I trust in the final vindication of God. This isn't like a strategy. <laughs> like, this, isn't like a, this isn't like a PR move. Like, if you actually believe this is the story... Yeah. You have to follow it yeah. and trust in the vindication of God. Yeah. How do we do this? I want to give you three things I want to encourage everyday church as a community or anybody else that's in a different church community, some, some three things that we can do, and then we'll wrap up tonight. First one, tell a better story in your church. Mm. Really push yourself. Push yourself to not just be people that read the Scriptures, but get as close to the location of inspiration as possible. God vested his authority in biblical authors in a different culture, and it's going to take some work to understand it, guys. Yeah. We, the scriptures are inspired, but our questions that we bring to the scriptures aren't always inspired. Mm. If I open up, I do like the, you know, like, Jesus, give me a word for the day, and you just flip the Bible open, and you, <laughs> you point your finger in there. There's no guarantee that the way you're treating the Bible in that way is inspired. We want to step into the world of the Scriptures. We're trying to get yeah. as close to the location of inspiration as possible. So don't just read your Bible or study the Bible. Allow the lens you've been reading the Bible through to be challenged. So this is within this subheading of like, tell a better story. Read outside of your denomination and tradition. Yeah. Read outside of your culture. Man, in seminary, I got rocked by this book. I still disagree with it, but it made me doubt whether or not I actually knew the scriptures, and it was really, really good. It was written by a, a Latin American liberation theologian named John Sabrina. It was called Principles of Mercy. In the end, I still have disagreements with him, but it was really, really good. This Latin American guy who lived in a very different culture from me read the scriptures in such a way that I went, oh my goodness, I might not be a Christian and it was really good for me. Yeah. We've got to have our biases challenged because we confess, like we're all in a culture. So how could we see outside of our culture unless we allow other cultural voices to speak into it? Wow. Wow. Learn about the ways Christians before you read the scriptures. And Christians from different cultures across time and history, learn, read the church fathers, read Luther and Calvin. Read Thomas Aquinas. You don't have to agree with them in the end, but they might see in some of your blind spots. Okay, the second thing, and we're just about done. The second thing, 
Make sure that the spiritual formation practices, the symbols, the liturgy of your church shape people to be immersed in God's story, to become more Christ-like, and to bless the world. Check the practices that you do. This is a really good thing we need to even evaluate in the lyrics that we're singing in worship. Because we can sometimes be unaware. We feel like a sense of, man, I, you know, I feel the Spirit on this. And what we might be feeling is like resonance with the parts of this song that might have to resonance with American culture. So there's a place for like individual songs, like me and you, Jesus, but there's also a place for songs about the collective work God's doing in church, across the world, in your community, in your context, to sing the good news, yeah. right? These yeah. are just a few of those practices. Examine what symbols you're using. Examine the practices, not just in church, but outside of church. Again, Josh, Katie could preach a killer sermon if you go home and fill your brain with like 10 hours of ancient aliens conspiracy theories, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what's going to shape you more. Yeah. Finally, uh, the last thing I would encourage you to do is to become culturally competent so that you can care for culture, not conquer it. And this isn't a short-term strategy. So we need Christians that are scientists yeah. We need Christians that are businessmen and women. We need Christians in philosophy. Yeah. We need Christians in the arts. Not to take over the world. That's right. That's right. <laughs> to bless the world and entrust God with the fruit yeah. of it. In the city's welfare will be your welfare. Yeah. And we have to trust that about God's word and his work. Well, thank you all again for listening to part two of this series entitled Culture War Christianity. Thank you again to Everyday Church for hosting me and allowing me the opportunity to speak into their community and for recording these lectures so that I can share them with all of you. Today's podcast is made possible without advertisement because of the generous support of listeners just like you over on Patreon. I'm especially thankful for the generosity of Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Jesse, John Mark, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam, Sarah, Stephen, Taylor S. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do it without you. I hope you'll all participate in the discussion forum. Share with me your thoughts, your questions, your opinions. I, I love hearing all of them. So feel free to reach out to me in the discussion forum. You can message me on Patreon too as well. I do my best to respond to each one of those on Patreon. You can also reach out to me on Twitter, or on Instagram. Uh, those will be the social media sites I'm most most active on. And of course, you can leave um, comments. I guess you can't leave a comment on YouTube. This one won't be on YouTube. But many of the other episodes we do, uh, especially the interviews or um, commentary, lecture videos, I've been doing more on YouTube. So certainly you can subscribe over there as well. Thanks for listening. Finally, uh, if you're finding this podcast helpful and you're not quite ready to commit to supporting it on Patreon, I would invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover this. Uh, I will be a little bit more active over the next few weeks 
Again, some of you have kept up with the updates I've been put, posting on Patreon and the pace of life has um, picked up here. <laughs> and so in many ways, I, I can't keep up with weekly episodes right now, but there will be spurts where there will be weekly episodes and maybe a few week hiatuses after those spurts. It's difficult to predict, but uh, your support makes the podcast possible. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for any word of mouth that you want to give um, word of mouth reviews and, and sharing this with others is certainly beneficial too as well. Thank you. Well, until next time, I look forward to uh, hearing all of your comments and feedback and we'll talk again soon.